0: Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peak. Welcome to episode 415 of HER, the podcast where, well, you're going to hear the truth about her mind, her body, her life, and her O-word. Well, what? What are you talking about? The O-word? Oh, I just thought about something. This could mean a lot of different things. <laughs> 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 oh, my goodness gracious! We're probably going to be talking about obesity. Before we begin, this episode is made possible by our friends at Solary Vitamins, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y Vitamins. We all try to be able to get all of our vitamins through our veggies, fruits, so we got The Gap taken care of. Run on over to Solary Vitamins, especially to the multivites for women. To make certain that you fill those gaps because we try but we're not perfect and that's the way it goes so go to solarray.com all right it's time for her her the podcast the naked truth about women her mind her body her life it's all about her dr stanford is an obesity medicine physician scientist educator and policymaker at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. She's a national and internationally sought after expert in obesity medicine who bridges the intersection of medicine, public health policy and disparities. And I have to tell you, all of you out there in the her Podcast land, I've had the absolute distinct pleasure of knowing Fatima all these years. I mean, how many years has it been? You were what, a medical student?
1: I actually, I can't remember if I was a medical student or early resident, but it's been quite some time. I think actually I was a, I was a resident when I reached out to you. I, I decided to write an entire issue on obesity for the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics. And I reached out to you to get your perspective as someone that was doing work in the public sphere as a physician and, and how that reflected on obesity way back before anybody was really talking about it.
0: Basically, I was cool before cool was cool. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think everyone knows that I was very frustrated throughout all of my academic degrees. I have two masters in public health, public policy, and, you know, I just went on and on. And it never made sense to me that nobody in medical school ever taught me anything about nutrition or physical activity for that matter. And I thought, that's ridiculous. And so I had to, like you, you know, in many respects, we did this on in our own way. Right. I became a Pew Foundation scholar in nutrition and metabolism, and I had to kind of learn it my way, my way, and then went to the NIH with all that little information, and I was stunned by the lack of knowledge on the part of all of our peers. When you reached out to me, I was like, yay, somebody cares. And then I have been just, it's so amazing. I've been watching your career. I feel like such a mentor. (laughs) I've been watching your career as you've really expanded into this field of obesity care. And the first thing I wanna ask you is why this? I mean, there's so many things you could have done with your stellar background.
1: Why this? Well, I think the answer to that is it's simple and then complex at the same time. Let's see if I can bridge why I say that it's simple and complex. I personally think that we're all put here to do something different and so unique that no person living, no person dead, and no person yet to be born could do it any better. And this is where I am. As a black woman born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and the, the South, obviously I'm in Boston now, but... I consistently saw obesity in my immediate sphere amongst my family, amongst my friends. And I saw people trying so hard, so hard. They were getting up at five in the morning to work out. They were measuring everything. They were using, you know, the appropriate tools and resources still struggled. I saw it across different socioeconomic strata. And I recognized that there's something more to this story that I just don't know. And much like you mentioned, we didn't learn anything about the most prevalent chronic disease in human history, which is obesity. We learned nothing in medical school, nothing in residency. It was only when I did my three-year fellowship in obesity medicine here at, at Mass General that I began to learn about this complex chronic relapsing remitting disease that is obesity. And so the simple answer is, this is the disease that no one's studying get us the most prevalent chronic disease. And the more complex answer is I recognize that there was so much more to the story than what I was learning and what I was learning. And I, I really have to say this. And I think this is true of us as physicians was what I was reading in self magazine or woman's health magazine or, or health magazine, you know, like all of the, the things that I guess when people still bought magazines, you know, in their grocery stores or had the subscriptions come to their house, And then I was like, wait a minute, why am I learning more from those sources? It's because I was learning 0% in the formal clinical setting, the one that is supposed to train you, right? Because if you do any exercise video, start any program, what do they always say? Talk to your doctor. The problem is the doctor doesn't typically know anything, not because they don't want to know, but because it's never emphasized, never taught. And so I kind of feel like, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? And this is the work I think I was called to do. I think that that's
0: fabulous. And you're also a terrific messenger. You and I last saw each other at the North American Menopause Society annual meeting. And what was wonderful was to see you message so articulately. So let's kind of get into what that messaging is. You know the statistics as well as I do. Starting back, good Lord, 1997, the majority of Americans were actually overweight, so that could have been 10 pounds, 20 pounds, whatever. But that was already a milestone. It's like, uh uh-oh, a harbinger for funky things to happen. And now, I believe that by the year 2030, if we keep up with these kinds of statistics and trending, that the majority of American adults will be obese. And to me, that is so shocking. That means that you and I, as non-obese, are in the minority for the first time, which is so fascinating to me. And it's breathtaking, and I'm terrified about what that really means for the health of our nation in general. What do you think of those statistics?
1: Well, I'm going to first do a little tweaking of your language because there's one word I don't ever use, and that's the word obese, except to say I don't use the word obese because it's highly stigmatizing. And what I do is I would say a patient with obesity or a person with obesity, they have it but aren't defined by it. What we do know is that two-thirds of the population already has overweight and obesity or what some are calling pre-obesity and obesity We have not seen the current NHANES numbers. And for those that don't know what that is, that's the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. The last data they released was in 2018, which showed that 42.4% of U.S. adults had obesity. Now, 2018 was five years ago. It was a major shift in our lives, the COVID-19 pandemic. And if we look at the BRFSS data, which is the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, which is self-report data, where the maps that we look at, that we those heat maps that show that really consistent rise in obesity, we've seen major shift in those maps based upon self-report data. And what I want to point out to everyone is that with self-report data, we can almost guarantee you that that is an underestimate of what the reality is, because most of us like to fudge our own numbers. We don't quite list the exact weight we are. You know, we kind of give us ourselves a little grace when we're doing self-report data. Haynes is, is measured data. So I think within the next year, year and a half, I wouldn't be shocked if we saw already more than half the population.
0: For the purpose of our audience, let's define what all of this means. You mentioned pre-obesity. You mention the obese state. What does that mean? like what kind of numbers are we talking about? I think a lot of people are very
1: confused. So first of all, I'll tell you about BMI, but I want to talk about the problematic origin of BMI, which is why there's a lot of pushback and why I think there are problems with it as it lies. But the reason why I have to bring up BMI is to kind of talk about what the population-wide data is. So BMI, body mass index. Yes, body mass index, which say that a person is considered to have normal weight status between 18.5 and 24.9. A person's considered to have overweight or pre obesity if their BMI is between 25 and 29.9. And then we get into our three classes of obesity class one, class two, class three, which is mild, moderate, and severe obesity, a BMI of 30 to 34.9 being mild obesity moderate BMI 35 to 39.9, and then those with a BMI greater than or equal to 40 severe obesity. But let's talk a little bit about BMI and its problematic origins and its issues that I think are where people push back and even myself push back. So BMI initially was derived from a Belgian statistician by the name of Aldolf cutelet in the 1800s who sought to determine what was considered normal weight status for Belgium male white soldiers at the time. It was then utilized by a guy by the name of Sir Francis Galton to determine what was considered normal and was the basis for eugenics. So what was considered normal for racial ethnic status, immigrant status, weight status, socioeconomic status, and it became the basis for Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. So that's where BMI comes from. In the 1930s, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company sought to determine what was your risk of dying if you were white, male, or female insured by their company, hence the term morbid, which I also don't use as it relates to obesity, because it was based on actuarial tables. So we have a statistician, and now we have the life insurance companies. And so that BMI greater than or equal to 40, that you will hear the term morbid. I won't use it, but I'm using it to explain how it's used what was your risk of dying sooner? So if you had the severe obesity, what was called morbid, then that was to determine your higher risk for dying. Fast forward to where we are now in the 2020s, and you'll note that none of those came from medicine or science. And so the height and weight status doesn't tell us the health status of an individual. One of the things that I'm doing right now, working with the Lancet Commission on obesity, where there are over 60 countries represented to redefine how we evaluate obesity is to look at overall health and not just the number on the scale, which is where we get into problems. For example, for Asian populations, we've seen that if we look at a much lower number, that's going to be important because they have a much higher health risk or metabolic health risk, which means higher predisposition to type 2 diabetes, fatty liver at much lower BMI, such that the cutoffs For Asian adults, changed in 2004, such that someone that had a BMI of 25, it placed them into a category of having obesity, depending upon what data you look at, 25 to 27 for Asian individuals. I redrew the BMI charts for the major racial ethnic groups here in the U.S. and published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2019, and for the group known to have the highest rates of obesity, which would be non-Hispanic black women like myself we actually see that the BMI chart shifts up quite a bit to somewhere between 31 and 33 is the cutoff. And so I think we you put all this together and just know that this number by itself is a great population measure, so we can look at the full population. But when we are working with individual patients, I have to look at all of the information. And so I'm usually coupling, what does this BMI tell me, but what does also their metabolic profile tell me, and what does their waist circumference tell me, and put that full picture together To decide what their current health is. I have patients that are 300 pounds that have much better health than a lot of my patients that are 150 pounds. And it's because I have the full gamut of information to look at to determine like where they are. So I know that was a complex answer, but I think that this is one of the key questions that has been raised, particularly as we think about the fat acceptance health at every size community is like, okay, wait a minute, what does this BMI and, and does this really determine how healthy or unhealthy I am? That's where we are.
0: Okay. So when you're seeing someone who first comes into your office, and I think this is really an interesting exercise. I think a lot of people are used to old school interactions between a physician like ourselves and them. So it'll be, you know, step up on the scale there might be a waist measurement, and then there's a jumping right into the whole issue of energy in, energy out. I know, don't break out into a sweat. And then maybe some talk about lifestyle changes, if this is the first interaction, or if someone is really running into issues like metabolic issues, maybe you know other interventions back and forth. But aside from all of that, there's a whole new temperament to this now, where I think we as physicians are becoming a lot more sensitive to the pain and angst of someone who, regardless of the level of denial they have to live with to just get up in the morning and get on with life, because it's hard, but the level of pain and angst they walk into the door with, and sort of starting there and then kind of going there. How do you work now? Because you're kind of a beautiful role model for other physicians who are saying, okay, I don't want to go old school. What do I do?
1: I do quite a bit in preparation for a new patient visit. And any of my patients will say, as you know, they have homework assignments that they are required to do before I see them for their hour-long initial visit. What I have them do it. I recorded a video many years ago called Obesity, It's More Complex Than You Think. And I have them watch that video. There are other videos I give them, but this is the key one that I have them watch because often what they've been told about their weight and weight status has been wrong. And I want them to understand who they are as it relates to how I identify with the subject matter, but also learning about themselves before they cross that threshold into my door into my room to understand that this is going to be a warm, inviting space for me to hear about what are the different contributing factors. We know there are over 100 contributing factors to obesity. So which seven do you have? Which 10 do you have? So we know how to address it. And they've never seen anything like this. I teach them about the science of obesity, the pathophysiology of how the brain and gut and intestines work. So that they, when they get in that day, they have a sense of that. They also, before they see me, have to do a full lab panel, which is based on the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, and the Obesity Society guidelines. So I'll know what their fasting blood sugar is. I'll know what their fasting insulin. I'll know their cholesterol values. I'll know their hemoglobin A1C. I'll know their liver function is. I'll know all of these things. So when they come to that visit, I have a really good sense Of who they are at least on that day. They've also already completed a questionnaire for me to get a sense of what has their weight struggles been over the course of their life. Did this start when they were two years old? Did this start when they were 55 years old? At what point did this start and what were some of the things that led to these changes? Was it hormonal shifts? Were they placed on some type of medication and notice weight gain. What was it? What were some things that they noticed? I mean, they may not be able to identify all of those things. That's my job. But they can often tell you, and then they'll tell you what they've tried. I tried this program. I tried this program. I tried these 75 programs <laughs> or whatever it was. And what things they found to help them achieve success, obviously short-term, because they're seeing me, so that must not have been like a long-term success. Or or maybe they did get some success and wanted some additional Assistance. What about family history? Oh, family history is extremely important. We know obesity is highly heritable. So that's going to be part of the questions in that initial kind of 10-page questionnaire that they do for me to just get a sense of who they are and where they're coming from. I do take care of, as an internist and a pediatrician, several multi-generation families where I'm taking care of the children, the parents, and the grandparents And in three circumstances, I'm even taking care of the great-grandparents. So when we talk about the fact that I have so many families, we have to recognize the heritability of this disease. And those people that are typically coming into me at age two, three, four, five, I can guarantee you this isn't just what food did to them. This is often, you know, the cards they were dealt and so they're facing this disease much earlier than others because it's not just those environmental perturbations, right, that have led them to be here, but just their origin story.
0: What I love to say is genetics may load the gun, but environment and lifestyle habits pull the trigger. And so clearly we all have different genetics and, and genetic proclivities, but if you were born into an atmosphere, an environment where it's a food desert, you have no decent food to even grab, exercise is pretty much out unless you want to get shot on the street, and it just goes on and on. I hosted a show for the Discovery Channel called The Body Challenge, the National Body Challenge, and I'm going to tell you something. I walked in there like, oh, I know it all. Then they gave me these families from East L.A. I'm telling you, I'm not even kidding you when I tell you that once when we were shooting that literally there was shooting going on and all the crew members had to jump into a car. And I kept thinking, well, it's easy for us to jump in a car and go somewhere safer. What about the people who are living here trying to get healthier? I'm gonna tell you something. It was one of the most humbling experiences of my life because, you know, we can go namby-pamby and we can say, well, Gwyneth Paltrow does this and Beyonce does that. Well, that's really special, except for the people who have so few resources and are just trying to struggle by and do their best with more obstacles than you can, you know, shake a finger at. That's why I asked about the whole environment, a holistic look at this.
1: Oh, you know, it's important. I like, that's why that visit is so long. You know, people hear that it's an hour. It's really kind of more closer to an hour and 10, 20 minutes, as the patients that are waiting behind those new patients. Because it's so much to cover. It's so much to cover. It's not just like, oh, what did you eat yesterday? Tell me about your eating and, oh, did you exercise? It's getting the full picture, the full gamut of what's going on in their lives, their lived experience, putting the whole pieces of the, you know, really kind of putting a puzzle together and getting a sense of like, where do I start? And, and recognizing that each person is going to be unique, right? Like every single person, when they come in, you can't assume that, oh, this is that person like that person. We don't know that. Until you start talking, you get a sense of what's going on, the whole story, then you can begin to take kind of bite-sized approaches to different... Like what? what's a bite-sized approach? It depends on the person. So give me a person. Give me, You want to give me a patient? Or do All you right. Me-
0: so here comes somebody. Okay. Hi, I'm 50. I'm just going to make this stuff up as I go along. Hi, I'm 50, and I've never been in shape. That's defined as I don't really work out. I kind of go on and off diets. You know, something cool comes down the line. It's bling. I grab it. I've uh, probably gained and lost the same... 60 pounds countless times, and here I am. I'm entering menopause, and now it's even worse. I think I've even put on 20 more, so maybe like I'm at 70, 75 pounds over, and I'm feeling pretty helpless, hopeless, and defeated.
1: And so I say to whoever this patient is, <laughs> we're going to call her Jane. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for coming. I know that was real, this is really hard. It sounds like you've really tried a lot of different things over time, and, and I'm here to help you be your best self and get to the happiest, healthiest weight for you. I don't know what that number is going to be. Most people will probably give you a number. But I don't know what that number is going to be. You know, I took a look at your labs and I do see some issues, you know, like that hemoglobin A1C puts you in the pre-diabetes range. You know, I'm, I'm really concerned about that. And your insulin level was quite high. I'm also seeing some problems here in, in your cholesterol values and, and your liver function tests are, are suggesting to me that you have evidence just from those exams. Okay, now I'm terrified. No, no, no. Then I go over them. But I think that we can help you. So right now, what I want to do is work on optimizing some of the lifestyle pieces first, you know, let's optimize these things. Let's find out what things have worked for you. Like everybody wants to ask me, what diet do I put you on? I'm not certain what (laughs) diet you need to be on. I want you to, to have the happiest, healthiest food that you can have that works for you and your culture and your background. You know, I'm going to have you meet with one of my seven dietitians and help work on that and see see how that helps. It sounds like you have a potentially some psychological stress associated with just how hard this has been. And so, you know, I think you want to work with maybe one of our four psychologists, you know, on that piece of the puzzle. But I have some tools and strategies that I think, you know, I'm noticing that, you know, you're in moderate to severe obesity, which, and we have a lot of medical problems. So I think potentially starting a medication to couple these things may be something to consider, but recognize that if we do go down that pathway and if it does work, notice I said, if we do, and if it does work, because everyone responds differently, everybody assumes this is a magic pill or a magic shot, or it's not that, this will be a, a long-term commitment to those things, Okay. That might be, you know, obviously it's going to take an hour and a half. So it's much, much longer than this. But it's about recognizing what this person needs. Well, you know what it sounds like to me? And it
0: is something
1: that I have found
0: worked for years and years. Go where the person is. Just live in their head. Look outside their eyes from inside their head and view the world as someone who is, in this case, a 50-year-old, you know, menopausal woman who is feeling very hopeless and defeated and doesn't really understand if there's a new way to approach this. So she's open to that and your way of doing that is great. Talk to me about new treatments for obesity now.
1: You know, it's interesting, the new treatments, i.e. the new medications have gotten a lot of attention. But for those of us that have been doing this work, we've been using medications to treat obesity long before These new drugs came on the market and having patients do very, very well. And so I think we kind of look at the new medications, which are a group of medicines called GLP1 agonist, which stands for glucagon like peptide 1 agonist. We've given them all the praise. (laughs) I think that's the word I want to use. And that's fine. I think that for the reason why they've gotten so much attention is because the average total body weight loss is, is higher on average than some of the more traditional agents. So the drug Ozempic will go be semaglutide on average. We're looking at 15.5% total body weight loss at about 52 weeks or so, which is a year. There's a new agent that's being reviewed by the FDA has already been approved for diabetes. It's a dual agonist. I mean, it has that GLP-1, but it has something called a GIP. It's called terzepidide. That is also of the trade name of Monjoro for the treatment of diabetes. They just got approved in 2022, we're looking at 22.5% total body weight loss. So these numbers sound quite impressive. And on average, those that are responders can do well. But notice I said those that are responders. Not everyone is well-suited for this. these medications, meaning their brain chemistry doesn't work with these medicines to generate any sustainable change and I feel like we've kind of discounted these traditional meds that may be more effective for these individuals just because like ooh let's go all the way to the Rolls Royce <laughs> but we never tried to see if the Toyota was a good and effective car right so I mean that's kind of what I feel like sometimes happens I think that the safety profile is such that it's great and such the cardiologists are excited about these medicines because they have been desirable when looking at the cardiovascular outcome trials reducing stroke heart attack death heart failure admission. I mean, so a lot of positive things, but nothing's a holy grail, right? Like, so these, even with the new medicines that are out, there is no one perfect solution. And a lot of what I'm doing with patients is finding out what works for them. Is Are these new tools ones that should be utilized? Can they be utilized? Are they accessible? Are they affordable? There's a lot of different things that go into my determination with the patient, right? I just bring it
0: up because the medications, you know, are appearing on TikTok, celebrities are using them off label to drop a few. And then now we have follow-up articles saying that if you go off the medication, you
1: rebound and you regain the weight. You will regain the weight. That's why I say to my patients, like, look, if this works, we are committing to this indefinitely. No one expects to go on a hypertensive med and, hey, like, when do I come off that, doc? When do I come off that cholesterol medicine? Oh, you know, I have depression and oh, it's been well treated. Let me stop the medicine. If the medicine works, then it is a long-term commitment to utilizing that because we are acting on areas of the brain. And as soon as you pull back that activity on the brain, then your body gets back to where it was prior to that intervention. It's kind of like you wouldn't expect one workout to last you indefinitely, right? Or one healthy meal. Like, oh, I had that healthy meal back in 1998. Like, that's great. That was very happy for you. But but that was a long time ago. And so you have to, you know, you have to be consistent, right? Like, if fitness is something that has driven you into a different weight status, you don't expect to do that one high-intensity interval training workout that'll carry you indefinitely. I mean, it's effects wear off, but, you know, after about 24 hours, it's time to do something else, right? So That's kind of how I think the easiest way to think about it, but these, all of the medicines, for the most part, are acting on the central nervous system, which is the brain, in different ways to change how the brain sees weight. And you're right. So the studies have shown this. Wilding and colleagues published this, where when you withdraw GLP-1, you do see rapid regain. So like I said, if these medicines work, if they are effective for you, it is a long-term commitment to these medications. But if they're efficacious, if you lost one pound that was probably not the right choice for you. So you and I are clued in as providers
0: who get it because we went out of our way to get a heck of a lot more training in this and all the rest of it. What I'm worried about is what's going on with our brethren who are still having people hop up on a scale and kind of doing the whole thing. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because I have colleagues who reach out to me saying, I, as a professional, they're telling me, I'm feeling really afraid of the fact that the train left the station and that this country will end up being majority obese and unhealthy and not on top of an optimal well-being for the entire country. And that there's no going back, like, what's going to change this? The environment is so challenging. We have an obesogenic environment. Let's just call it what it is. I mean, you and I probably, I mean, I'm going to speak for you. Here we go. We have to be mindful of every one of our mouthfuls. I'm an athlete, so that helps. At least I got that end of it done. But my goodness gracious, when it comes to nutrition, I feel like it's a battlefield when I'm traveling and speaking and doing my thing it's like oh my god are you kidding me you're having me eat this and and a lot of the stuff is just ultra processed junk so do you feel you know just at a public policy level when we're looking at how we could make the biggest change get the biggest return on investment when we have this kind of a trending going on
1: what does your mind think yeah, I think that we try to simplify it. I think that we want it to be nutrition. If we just fix nutrition, that everything just falls into place. But it's so much more complex than that. And I think it's going to require a multidiscipline, multi-faceted approach to really address obesity. And right now, we've been going after the same beast: nutrition, 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 nutrition. Throw in a little fitness, nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. nutrition. And yes, do we have room for improvement there? Absolutely. But we aren't addressing anything else. (laughs) We aren't addressing the fact that we have tremendous disruption in sleep and circadian rhythm, which leads to weight storage. Because Pam, when I was growing up and you were growing up, when the TV, when it got to what, midnight? You remember those lines that used to come on the TV? It's like, you're out of (laughs) here. There's no more programming. You're like, okay, well, it's time to go to sleep. I remember this is even before the remote, she had to go and turn off the TV you, then the remotes, then you could finally, if you really fancy, you had a remote. Now you can get any programming of any kind. 24-7. Right? That You couldn't order, like, you can order something to be delivered to your house. You never have to move. Yeah, you don't have to do anything. You can do, everything can come to you. We as professionals are encouraged to have international collaborators. So I can give a lecture to my colleagues in Australia at two in the morning and be rewarded. Although my body is not really supposed to be up at two in the morning. It's supposed to be asleep. All these things, I mean, all of these are disruptors that just our technological advances have really caused some major issues. We don't really talk about those shifts we also focus on food that we forget that all that's happened
0: well you know i'm on the board of the american college of sports medicine we're the ones who write all of the big policies for physical activity guidelines we're in 100 countries we've got this whole thing going right i'm an absolute nutcase okay wait a minute hold on a second i have to get on my soapbox here okay here we are just comfortable on my soapbox okay where the hell are the parks where are the biking trails? Where are the hiking trails, walking trails? Where are all of the boys clubs, girls clubs, community clubs, you know, getting people engaged? The fitness end of this makes me crazy.
1: But then going back to what you said, and I don't want to cut you up, but I want to remind you of East LA. You can have the parks and you have all those things, but if you can't be in that environment, it means nothing. Like, if it's too dangerous. So, I happen to live and I think about myself and, and the privilege that I have. You know, I live really close to the Boston Common. I can go there and I go to the public garden. I can do, and I can run along the esplanade. But there's a certain privilege that comes with me being able to do that. And I pay for that privilege to be in the place where the reality is a lot of people don't have that. And what we're talking about, what he was basically saying, is that's a proxy for how safe that environment is.
0: Well, you know, can I tell you just a quick side story? When I was filming in East L.A., we went to a home of a beautiful woman with her three kids. There was no father. It was just her, you know, keeping it all happening. It was a rental. It was the smallest home ever, but at least she had a home and and all the rest of it. And then, you know, I remember walking in with the crew, and I noticed a golf club, and I thought that's weird. I mean, this would be the least likely, but you know. So I'm thinking, wow. And she goes, oh, that's for the dogs. And I said, excuse me? And so we kind of let it go because they had to drag me out. So now what I was going to do is take the entire family outdoors. And we were going to walk in the neighborhood and, you know, show them some brisk walking, you know, do the whole thing and and enjoy ourselves. We were kind of joyfully doing it until I looked ahead and I saw a pack of dogs. And these were apparently dogs that drug dealers and other people had let loose. You know, they tend to be the pit bull type. They spotted us, and they started hurrying toward us. Honey, you have never seen me run that fast in your life. You were a sprinter. Jackie, join Kersey has nothing on you. <laughs> I'm just telling you right now that what happened was I looked at everyone and I said, you know how we were doing brisk walking? We're now going to run. Okay, how about we run? And meanwhile, I'm running like you've never seen in your life until we finally got back to the house and I collapsed in a small heap. And then I sat with it and I said, so this is what they live with every single day.
1: And those are the dogs. They're the dogs which can bite. And But Humans are worse than dogs, right? I know. I mean, it's just crazy. This is, it was so
0: humbling. When I finished doing that series, I have never in my life had such an enlightening experience about just the environment,
1: just the whole thing. Well, I'll look at it this way, you know, Pam, my parents have overseen a food pantry in Atlanta for a little over 25 years now. It's at a church, the church I grew up in. And every Thursday, they run this food pantry. And over the years, they've been able to really get a lot of really high-quality food, organic, non-processed, etc. They also get the processed donations because Krispy Kreme and all those people also like to donate to them. What's interesting after they finish the food pantry, which goes the full day, let's say it goes from 9 to 3 or so, is that when they are going to the church parking lot after they've distributed all of the, you know, the food for, for the week to different families, and I think they feed... Close to 200 people, you know, every time, but they, you know, they get lots of things they can carry home with them, and what they find scattered along the parking lot are all the fresh fruits and vegetables. And so, when we talk about issues with like, okay, well, are we people eating healthy? But let's tie in why why they don't want the fresh fruits and vegetables. Number one, a lot of them are not only food insecure, they're housing insecure. So you have fresh fruits and vegetables. I can give you a lovely big buck. So what are you going to do with this? If you don't have like your fierce living out of a shelter, where do you store that? Your broccoli and your, your mushrooms and your kale. I mean, what are you going to do with that? A lot of them have never seen a lot of the vegetables in pure form. You
0: are so right. We make such assumptions. I did some work here in Washington, D.C. It was a big volunteer effort we did, and we brought out all kinds of fruits and vegetables. We had big tents and everything. And do you realize that half the kids
1: had never seen what I brought? Like, even something as simple as corn on the cob. One of the people asked my mom, well, what is this? And she's like, oh, that's corn. She was like, well, why is it on this thing? And she was like, oh, like she just assumed that everybody knew that corn came on a cob and that if it's, you can take it, you know, you can cut it off the cob, but it that's where it starts, <laughs> that's how it's grown. Something as simple and as basic as that, let alone kind of the fancier asparagus and kale and...
0: Which is why I'm such a fan of community gardens. Right.
1: We can give them a community garden, but if they don't have a place to prepare it or to store it or to...
0: Understood.
1: ...anything, they, it means nothing. You can have a garden that you pass by and you're like, that's lovely, but I don't know where I'm going to live tomorrow. Right. I don't I don't have a refrigerator. I don't have a stovetop. I don't have an oven. I can't... Like, I mean, I guess you could just go around eating a raw pepper or, you know, that's not usually how I do it. I usually slice and dice. And So I, I think that pulling back, what we're really saying and what you're saying is the way
0: you practice medicine now as a leader in this field is holistically doing it with, leading with compassion, leading with humility that maybe you don't know at all, and that you're, as a provider, an excellent listener, and that you're going to pick up cues and really important information from ha- from them about how they live and what's most important to them. None of this was happening before. It was a slam bang and you're out of here. And oh, by the way, here's your 1200 calorie diet and don't let the, <laughs> the door kick you on the, on the way out. So I want everyone in the Herb podcast land to know that there's a a new sheriff in town, as it were, a new way to be able to approach this entire issue, because it is now a national issue. This isn't some guy down the street or some gal over here. It's a national issue. I'm going to call and, it an
1: international issue. Because well, the, yeah, definitely. Why, you know, I just got back from speaking in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, and I'm speaking is up, coming up in Dublin, Ireland, or in Dubai, or whoever, is because— while we are in the top, believe it or not, we're ranked number 14 in terms of our obesity rates in terms of countries, which means we're not one, two, three, or through 13. Don't pat yourself on the back because we're, we're looking at 200 countries. So we're still in the top and this isn't the Olympics. We don't want to be at the top of the list at this point.
0: And it's important right now, this is going to require a large network of expertise from everything from infrastructure give me those damn parks, infrastructure to housing, to nutrition, to fitness at the simplest level, not some expensive club, that's not our real audience here. Our audience is just the mass consumer out there who is struggling every day and really feeling quite hopeless as they fall down the rabbit holes of every single fad that shows up at the front door. Now, let me ask you a final question. Where are all the obesity experts? How many people are getting trained to actually deliver the level of care that you and I are talking about?
1: So right now, there are over 6,700 people that are board certified in obesity medicine. There are less than 100 of us that have actually done fellowship training, but there are people that can go and sit for the obesity boards after taking a series of classes, lectures, maybe taught by people like myself, et cetera. And there's ai can't remember what the number of credits they have to get to sit for the examination so that they have some knowledge right in the field. That number continues to grow, but when we're dealing with you know over 130 million people with the disease, you can say that that number is still woefully underserving the population. Right? I think a lot will fall back on primary care. Will fall on specialists that are willing to kind of take up the banner of wanting to be included. I can. I've talked in the most recent past to seven different state chapters of the American College of Cardiology they're willing to begin to address. Endocrine is taking up the banner, GI is taking up the banner. And but like you said, it's not gonna just be medicine. It's gonna be all of these players. Government is gonna be a player, faith-based institutions, fitness community. We are looking at every facet of society. Schools, right? And that's part of that government. So a lot falls under the government piece, right? Like schools universities and institutions and academia are going to be playing a part. I think that everyone has to be at the table. We've been trying to shove it all to the dietitians and say, okay, fix this or shove it to the USDA or whoever. <laughs> That's just not enough. That's not enough. That's not enough of the, when we look at the full spectrum, the things you brought up about your time of, of looking at the full infrastructure, looking at history of trauma, looking at The fact that, unfortunately, when we're treating a lot of mental health conditions, et cetera, these medications cause, I mean, I've seen an excess of 200 pounds of weight gain.
0: Well, addiction is another one because overeating is a cross addiction. As soon as you're off whatever it is you jump on this other bandwagon saying to yourself at least it's not illegal to have a ho-ho or something or or back and forth i've dealt with uh, the addiction world for many years and i can just tell you the first thing they seek are just mountains of sugar you know so you see all the red bull and because
1: it it helps crave the brain right the brain craves it. it's interesting right because some of the medications for example the bupropion naltrexone combo now Trexone is used for opioid of course. use disorder, also for alcohol misuse, and it's also approved for obesity. There are some linkages in terms of what does the body crave and desire and how can we they're trying to get the higher high
0: that the nucleus accumbens, which is the reward center, is so used to from whatever the substances were. And by the way, it's almost rarely today is it just one substance. That was old school. Now it's like, just give me the damn list and let's just sort of pare things down. You and I could talk forever. and For at least
1: five more hours. I mean, at
0: least. But seriously, we can negotiate. It's just so comforting to know, Fatima, that you're out there that you're helping message this, educate providers, educate policymakers, and doing this at an international level, it's just so terribly important. I just want to be able to sleep at nighttime knowing that there's some hope here because the trends are so terrifying, and we've got to put some kind of a, a halt on this. And to be able to do it in a way that leads with compassion. And I remember from a million years ago, one of the, the great names in obesity research looked at me once and said, my greatest recommendation is never to become obese in the first place. And the reason why is something you and I know. And that is once you've gone there, it is a lot of work to reverse course
1: so, I'm just a crazy person about prevention. but I think that I think the train has left the station. The problem is, like I said, we have over two-thirds of the population that already has I know has an issue. and so I yes. no, it's the generations coming through, though, you know, the brand new
0: generations, you know, if we had parents who could mentor better with that and just, you know, lead again with ed- more education, knowledge, and compassion and be able to help kids even when they have a high genetic predilection, you could minimize the issue if you could just work with that. Does
1: that make sense? Well, not in all situations, and so that's what I, I really want to be. Like I said, when a patient comes into me at the age of two and they're already three standard deviations above the normal growth chart, there's something stronger there. And oh, there's no question about yeah, that. Yeah, and so for me, I'm cautious because I I see those people often. <laughs> And I like I'm usually taking care of their parents, and so I when they come in, I'm like not shocked at all because I I know this is this is as where they come from. I just know that so many people have struggled for so long, and have been disregarded, devalued, dehumanized. That I want you to know that this isn't your fault, and there are solutions, and we're there to help. And when I say we, there's a growing group of us that care about. Ensuring the best health for the patient. And like I said, this isn't about getting to a particular number on the scale. This is getting you to the happiest, healthiest weight for you.
0: I just, I think you're leading, leaving on that note makes me happy. And all I can say is, you're just doing a phenomenal job. Dr. Stanford, and all of us here at the Herb Podcast Land, just absolutely embrace your message. I know that this affects every single one of us, one way or the other. It affects us. And so this isn't some other person's problem, it's our problem. And we need to deal with this in a more holistic and caring way than has taken place. I can't thank you enough for being on the Herb podcast.
1: Well, thanks for, for being there for all of those years, however many years. I think it's been probably close to 20 now that we've been in, in the sphere and you know, starting off. And thank you for being receptive. One of the key things when I was putting together that issue was, was pulling together former surgeon generals and you know, people like yourself and John White and et cetera. And, and the fact that you were willing to be a part before this was sexy to do so, You know, I'm very thankful.
0: Cool before it's cool is all I can say, (laughs) Fatima. Okay, thank you so very much, everyone out there. I want you to please take a minute to hit iTunes and rate and review the show. And you should also know that the show's sponsor is Solaray Vitamins. And you know we try to do everything humanly possible to get the fruits and vegetables in, and we're not perfect. There's a P word. And so it's always good to have a little backup for those nutritional gaps. So please run on over to SolarayVitamins.com to Women's Vitamins because we have different needs and special needs. So please, run on over to solaraid.com right now. And uh, I can just tell you that this has been a phenomenal episode. Just loved every single moment of it. So give us your feedback. Hit iTunes, rate and review the show. I'm waiting to hear from you. My team and I just sit here with our little thumbs going round and round, waiting to hear your feedback, because we love it. It's platinum. It's golden. Hey, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, the host of the Her Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at PamPeekMD. Learn more because I just sit here and all I do is educate and message. That's all I care about, apparently. And this is a reminder to catch every single episode of the Her Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD or any of the larger platforms like Spotify. Hey, thanks for listening today. Stay safe and stay well.